You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning. Welcome to Riverview Church Online. So pleased to be able to share with you this morning. And we're going to be continuing our Church Forward series. And this is really to ensure that in this spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, that we as a church are ready to stand. And when we've done everything necessary to stand. And currently we're looking at the fiery darts, you know, these schemes, these weapons, these tactics of the enemy that are designed to ensnare us, distract us, discourage us, destroy us if possible. And the ones that that we're looking at a fear, doubt, weariness, indifference, and pride. But before I go any further today, I actually want to read you a letter. Now, this is no ordinary letter, right? It's a letter from Jesus to a people, kind of like you and me. And perhaps you've already read this. It's a letter to a first century church in a place called Laodicea. But it's also really, we need to read it as a letter to us as well. So in Revelation 3.14, where it begins, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, it could easily read to the angel of the church in 2021, read, uh, write this. And so he goes on to say, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. I know all about you, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And then he goes on, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, perhaps there's kind of an uneasy shuffling kind of going on right now, perhaps uncomfortable maybe at the prospect of what may follow from such a scripture as that. Like maybe you don't feel exactly on fire for Jesus right now. While you're not kind of stone cold, you know, you know him, you love him, you want him, but maybe it's been a while since you kind of burned hot for Jesus. Why why is that? And I get it. You know, I'm in the same boat. I hate it when a preach is used as an opportunity to vent frustration or to berate or lay guilt or shame. And that is not my intention this morning. And I don't believe that that is the Spirit's intention 
either. Remember, he disciplines those he loves. And so I want to start back to front today, really. I mean, often I aim to finish with the encouragement, with the, the joyful, gloryful, freedomful punchline. And if you've been paying attention to what I've been saying over the last year or so, you'll know that Jesus is, in my view, that glory-filled, joy-filled, freedom-filled punchline like every time. But today, I want to put the encouragement and the joy right up front so that you may hold that up as a lens through which to see and hear and understand this message which is on my heart for us as a church today. So however it sounds, this is not a letter of condemnation. I mean, you know who Jesus is, right? He, he came to seek and save the lost. He wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But he disciplines those he loves. So don't despise his discipline. I really encourage you with that today. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Listen, Jesus sometimes says painful, uncomfortable things to us. We cannot afford to ignore them because the truth is that these uncomfortable, sometimes painful things are aimed to bring life and freedom back to our table. This is not a letter of condemnation, but for fullness of life. And likewise, this is not to be a message of condemnation this morning. Now, maybe the Spirit says something uncomfortable to your spirit today, but I want you to hold Romans 8 verse 1 firmly in view. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in a minute, we're going to look at indifference, but first I'm just going to pray. So, Father, I ask today that you would help me to speak rightly and that your spirit would speak through me, that I would not speak a word that is untrue or something that is out of season, but rather that you would encourage and discipline where your spirit desires so that we may find fuller freedom in who you are and rise to be the church that you are calling us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. So what am I really getting at? I mean, how am I defining this uh, this kind of thing of indifference, particularly in a spiritual sense? Well, I mean, if you Google a dictionary definition of indifference, you'll find a variety of uses and definitions depending on which dictionary you go to. But pretty universally, what you'll find is that it is a lack of interest or lack of enthusiasm or concern or sympathy for something or someone. Or it can mean a sense of the mediocre, like a half heartedness okay i mean doesn't this sound a bit like what jesus was saying to that church in laodicea about being lukewarm like neither hot nor cold half-hearted somewhere in the middle to have as the bible would put it a divided heart now is this the same thing as apathy is that what i'm talking about today like you know that kind of sense of oh, i couldn't care less i mean it sounds 
similar but apathy i believe is further down the road from indifference i believe there's a progression here look remember with all of these fiery darts that we've talked about in previous weeks that they're not in and of themselves inherently wrong or sinful but all of them are a potential entry point for the schemes of the enemy that progression that we see toehold foothold stronghold like all of these things, fear, doubt, you know, indifference left to fester, they become something that is toxic, that is harmful, that is perhaps crippling to the life of a believer. Listen, indifference is half-hearted, whereas apathy is hard-hearted. Do you see the difference? Half-hearted to hard-hearted. Hard-heartedness is the natural progression from half-heartedness. Like, if you feel right now that you couldn't care less, eventually you will care less. I mean, so how does the enemy intend to ensnare us within this? Now, remember from week one, and I've mentioned it through a few times, that, that there's a definition of sin that we're working with in this series, that, that sin is worshipping something other than the living God, creator God, the God of the heavens and the earth. That's what sin is, worshipping something else. But also the definition of worship is that that is our ultimate focus. The thing that you give the most of your time, your attention, your effort to is the thing you are worshipping. And Satan's primary tactic is distraction to take you away from your focus upon the living God and remove that focus to something else. And this tactic that Satan employs can be intoxicating. Like through distraction, to, to have a, a dis distracted, divided heart, that's what Satan's ambition is here. Indifference is a misfocus, which left unchecked eventually leads to apathy, which connects or rather disconnects the emotion, the heart, so that we become hard hearted. Indifference is a misfocus that leads to hard-heartedness. And a great example of this in scripture that we see is King David, you know, the great king of Israel, such as there was never before him or after him until Jesus. But twice in the Bible, David is described as a man after God's own heart. We see that in 1 Samuel, we see it in the book of Acts as well as Paul is describing him, a man after God's own heart. And yet when David prays in Psalm 86, he says, give me an undivided heart. Like, Why would he pray that? Well, because his heart was divided, right? I mean, how so? Because David was distracted. His focus was able to be elsewhere. You know, a man after God's own heart and yet give him the wrong view, the, the wrong place, the wrong time, an intoxicating distraction. And he, from a rooftop, marveled in God's beauty, and yet he caught sight of something else that was also beautiful in his eyes. 
And that distraction entered first through his eyes as they wandered, but then it progressed through his thoughts as they wandered, and then into his heart as his heart wandered, and then became divided, and finally his heart became hardened. His actions then wandered. Grave sexual sin, betrayal, murder, and cover-up, hard-hearted murder and cover-up. And it all began with one intoxicating distraction. Now, you know, before we breathe a bit of a sigh of relief, I mean, maybe, you know, we've not done what David did. Maybe we go, phew, well, that doesn't cover any of my stuff, right? Perhaps not even close. But listen, often the intoxicating distraction is not quite so obvious as Bathsheba in a bath. Distraction doesn't have to take an obvious form. We may not even see it or be aware of it. It may even come through things that are mundane or good things. This is something that we have in common with the church in Laodicea because we have such wealth. We are able to say we don't need anything in our society right here, right now. Distraction comes easy to us. It it does to me anyway. I mean, how many ways? I I could not even count them. I want to give you a genuine physical example that actually illustrates a spiritual point here. In, I think it was 2003, I had an accident on the fast lane of the M4 in Wales, and it wrote off my beloved Cavalier Mark II SRI. I mean, it had bucket seats and a spoiler and everything. I loved that car. And the thing is, I wasn't doing anything overtly stupid or reckless. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't tailgating. I'm I'm not saying I've never done that, but I wasn't doing it then. I was just distracted. Okay, for a moment, I was distracted, but it was enough time to miss that the car in front of me had just stopped in the middle of the fast lane of that motorway. It just stopped. Now, I didn't see it because I didn't expect it. I mean, after all, this was the fast lane of the M4. Traffic had been moving really freely and I was in autopilot. You know what I'm talking about when you're driving, right? I mean, how many times have you done all your homework or whatever it is while you're driving down the road? You know, I was in that autopilot zone, but my mind, my thoughts were elsewhere. They were divided. I was distracted at that point in time because I was driving away from a a difficult, painful encounter. My mind was completely elsewhere. My focus was on other things, despite the, the absolute importance of having my mind as well as my eyes on the road ahead. I had a distracted concentration. That's what the Bible calls a divided heart. And so consumed by my thoughts was I in that moment that I became unintentionally indifferent to the reality of the road ahead and of all the other cars full of people that were around me. I didn't need to be speeding like a loony boy racer in that moment. Distraction was dangerous enough. Look, 
the Laodiceans, they thought they were doing okay, wealthy, dressed well, prominent in their society. They were cruising in the fast lane on autopilot, not doing anything obviously wrong or dangerous, but they were distracted. They had a divided heart, a misapplied focus. They did not think they needed anything from Jesus. You know, a church can be practically alive and healthy in appearance and yet be racked with crippling indifference and therefore shipwrecked. Now, recently I heard Pastor Matt Chandler in a series through Revelation say, and brace yourselves for this because it sounds a bit strong. He actually says that that Satan worship isn't all about candles and pentagrams and stuff like that. It is indifference to the true Lamb of God, disobedience to the true Lord. I mean, ouch. What a definition. I mean, that kind of almost sounds offensive, right? I mean, I'm not a Satan worshipper. Come on, that's ridiculous. Remember, though, what what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, because this sounds pretty harsh as well. I will spit you out. And what he means is, Your worship, your focus is unpalatable to me. It is disgusting in my mouth because why? It was not rightly placed. Worship is your focus. It is the thing that has your attention that you go to. And the Laodiceans were going somewhere other than Christ. They were worshipping elsewhere. Look, Satan is masterful at shifting the focus of our worship. He's good at shifting our focus away from God. You know, he doesn't need for your focus to be on kind of occult practices just so long as your focus is not on God. He's doing his job. Look, our intentions will always follow our attention. Our intentions will always follow our attention. What we worship will always get our heart with it. Look, if you've never had a Bathsheba moment, honestly rejoice. (laughs) Praise God. Maybe he protected you. I'm pretty sure that he has protected me in that kind of arena several times in my life. But also, consider the possibility that perhaps the enemy didn't need to put a Bathsheba moment into your focus to swing your focus. Perhaps our focus was already readily relinquished long before such a temptation was required. I mean, if it's indifference to the true lamb or disobedience to the true Lord, that's enough to knock our worship off of its true intended focus. So a checkpoint here. Are you single-mindedly following Jesus or do you have a divided heart? Now, I want to openly confess, I know this is dangerous online as well, but I want to openly confess to you that more often than not, I have a lukewarm heart rather than a hot heart. I I mean, I have a big personal 
issue here and I want you to know that. I want to tell you that right here and right now so that you don't feel that this is me having a dig at you. And so sometimes, often actually, if I'm honest, I, I may think that I'm pretty obedient generally, but like, am I really forgiving quickly? Uh, am I going places and gossiping or saying things out of line or out of place about people? Am I like actively and intentionally loving, not just talking about it, but acting upon it, letting my actions follow my intentions and my intentions following my attention? Like, am I focused on Jesus more than on TV? I mean, man, I can binge a series, right? Am I focused on Jesus more than that? Am I focused on him more than food? I mean, to be honest, nothing is going to get in between me and the dessert table at a church lunch, right? I will elbow you in the face to get you out of the way so that I can get to that pudding table, right? But the thing is, am I more focused on food than I am on Jesus? Is that more a priority to me? What about sport? I, okay, you've got me right. I'm, I'm not a massive sport fan. I do like Six Nations and things like that, but it's never really going to be a big distraction to me. But I tell you what really distracts me, my own popularity. And that's a hard thing to say. I like to be liked. And so I'm distracted when I feel as though somebody doesn't like me. In fact, that's one of my biggest distractions. Or what about the distraction of being good at my job? I mean, sometimes that takes the priority of my attention and focus, right? I mean, that's a big issue. And these are not wrong things. Like, God wants you to enjoy life. And also, wouldn't it be a bit weird if I wanted people to dislike me? I mean, what kind of freak would I be then? Or if I actually wanted to be bad at my job, like my desire is to be rubbish at my uh, job so that I can give more glory to God. That's ludicrous, okay? I should be being honourable in my job and being good at my job. But they can become mega distractions. What about other good distractions that, that you might have? What has your attention? You know, some of the things that get people finance, nothing steals focus faster for some people than a cash-related anxiety. You can be confident, you can be a, a prayerful kind of warrior, and then the finances get a bit testy, and the first place you go is into your books, and you try to figure that out for yourself, right? But what about relationships? I mean, when people are single, I've often heard people say, if I was married, I'd, I'd have more focus on God, you know, that, that if I could just get that thing lined up and sorted out. But the reality reality is that I've had people that are married say, if only I could just find some me time and then I could be more focused on God if I could just do that. You know, where does family fit in the focus? It's a good thing. We should be focused on our family. But where does it fit in terms of our absolute priority? You know, these are good things. There's no two ways about it. But the bottom line is that we will spend the most time on the things that are most important to our hearts. Is that Jesus? Or is something else crowding him out of the picture? You know, Satan uses good things to distract us from the best things. And the more crowded our heart becomes, the less room there is for the heart of a disciple to grow. Like God wants you to know abundant life. But the best in life, the best is only really accessible when we seek him first, place him in the place of highest importance. 
Now, it may seem that we as Christians like miss out on all the fun. I mean, I've heard that from some of my non-Christian friends before. The, the feeling is that you can either be spiritual but boring or worldly but fun. And so often, don't we, if we're honest, hanker after the things of the world because they seem fun, they seem fulfilling? I mean, Satan is a master at distortion so that we think that the world's things are satisfying and that God's things are unsatisfying satisfying. He flips them on their head, but it is a deception. And so three really quick points here, and then I'm going to wrap up. Firstly, those worldly good things are actually God's good things, but they've been corrupted and distorted in order to distract and ensnare us and steal our worship focus from God. Secondly, those good things They are only good things when held rightly as God intended and gave to us for our enjoyment. In fact, actually outside of him, they are utterly unsatisfying. And if at this moment in time you are living for for any other thing other than God, you will know the ultimacy of that is unsatisfactory. That's why you keep chasing for more. And then thirdly, the things of God, as he intends and gives, are never, never unsatisfactory. Being in his presence has never been a disappointment to anybody in history ever. Like in 24 years of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, I have never in a hot spiritual moment been disappointed. Never, not once, never unsatisfied when I felt the tangibility of his presence. You know, I've been gutted by other people's behaviour regularly, disappointed in myself, yes, in, in my own unbelief and in my own sin, totally unsatisfied with man's attempts to define him or fence him in often, but never, never in a moment of his tangible presence have I ever been anything less than utterly gobsmacked. And the best thing is, there's always more to come. Whatever level of enjoyment we find in him, there's more to be experienced. You will not bore the presence of God. You will not find yourself bored in his presence. There will always be more. Why would I want to focus my attention anywhere else? So, oh, restless, hungry and thirsty heart, be still. Find all of your sustenance in him. Drink deeply and be satisfied. Never thirst again. So as I wrap up this morning, has this been uncomfortable for you, perhaps? Look, you're not on your own. This letter was to and is to a church to a people, to us corporately together, not just you solely on your own, but to us as a collective. But remember, within all of this, in Christ, you are not under condemnation, but for freedom, the Son has set you free. And if he has set you free, then you are indeed free. He disciplines those he loves for that freedom. He disciplines so that you may know a richer sense of his presence, so that you may know a deeper sense of that freedom. You are loved and he disciplines those he loves and his discipline does not restrict. It releases into wide open spaces of freedom. 
So let me ask this, what has your attention in your life? Like David, can you pray, Lord, give me an undivided heart? Why? Because I need that. I don't have that without your help. Like David might be missing in action for a while, but he was fully restored and remained a man after God's own heart. Please notice that the first time that phrase is used, it's in the Old Testament of David. But the second time Paul uses it in the New Testament, God still regarded David as a man after his own heart. And I'm going to close with this this morning. There's a Michael W. Smith song. Uh, it's an old song. It might seem a bit cheesy because of its age to you, but the chorus really impacts me every time I hear it. And it says this, there was a boy who had the faith to move a mountain and like a child, he would believe without a reason, without a trace, he disappeared into the void. And I've been searching for that missing person. Have you got missing person syndrome? this morning? Like, do you crave, do you long for that person that you were when you first walked with Christ, that, that you burned hot, you were passionate, you, you had zeal for his name, and there was such an excitement. Was there anything disappointing about that to you? I mean, honestly, and perhaps you're craving that person right now. Go to God. If you're craving that missing person, take heart, because he is the person, the good shepherd, who would leave the 99 in order to find the one. Lord, give me an undivided heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.